We're going to be in a lot of places today. Start off in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We're going to be in Psalms 24. So you can just follow along if you want to here in a minute. My name's Matt Carter, lead pastor here at Sagemont. Second pastor in the history of the church. Um, and it is an honor to be here with you. Brother John, you here today? Raise your hand, Brother John. How you doing, man? Good to see you. I'm so glad you came today. So glad you're here today because so much of what we're talking about is us standing on the shoulders of a generation that were faithful to God before we ever got here. And we're getting to continue that legacy. Different from most Sundays today, we typically go verse by verse to the book of John, or excuse me, um, uh, First Peter. I preached for four years in John in my first church. God's so used to saying that, it comes out every once in a while. Um, but we're gonna talk today about the critical calling on our lives, the critical calling, the, the command, really, to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ with the gospel. And one of the ways that we're doing that is through what we're calling the Envision Project. Two years before I got here, Brother John and his team got together and they decided that the Lord was leading them to create a space right here at Sagemont Church for junior high and high school and college students. And if you came into the campus this morning, um, you probably noticed that construction has already begun on that. And so, but what we're talking about today really is the primary purpose of this building, which is this. The primary purpose of this building is not just to have a building for junior high and high school and college students. But the primary purpose of this building is to be a tool to help us fulfill our primary calling to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ right here at Sagemont Campus. Now, before I jump into the text today, I want to ask you a question. Have you guys noticed that our country's struggling right now? I, know, I mean, I know you know that. I know you get that. And so I'm not gonna get into all the reasons why, but I think we could all agree that our country is sin sick. That's the, the word that I came up with there, sin sick. It's hopelessly divided. It really is falling apart, tearing itself apart at the seams. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced it's gonna get a whole lot worse unless there is a mighty movement of God in our country. I'm, I'm telling you guys, I'm convinced it's not gonna get better unless there's a powerful movement of Almighty God in our country. And so here's a question for you. Biblically speaking, when times get hard in a country, in a nation when things begin to decline, when things begin to get difficult, when it looks like that evil is winning, the question is what does the scripture tell us moves the heart of God to intervene in that chaos and in that evil and in that decline and to turn the tide and to begin to pour out his blessing on us. What does the scripture say that moves the heart of God to do that? Well, I wanna show you two quick verses. I'm sure there's more than two, but there's two, two that came to my mind about God saying, hey, I'm willing to jump into this thing and turn the tide of your country. Let's read them together. The first one is in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. There's a couple of things in these two verses I'm gonna show you I've never really seen before that I think are important 
for us today. God is speaking. And he says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Man, doesn't that sound good? A healing of our land. It's an amazing statement. God says, I will intervene in the chaos. I will intervene in the evil. I will step into this thing. God says, and I'll do it. I will heal your land. But he says, there's some conditions. He said, I'll do that if. If people will humble themselves. They'll pray. They'll seek the face of God. If they'll turn from their wicked ways, God says, then I will heal their land. But check it out. Here's the thing. And I want you to, I want you to look closely at who God says he's calling to do that. I want you to look closely at who it is that God is looking at to give the condition that he will intervene in the nation. God says, if my people, if my people will do it, I'll heal the land. He, God, when God's looking at a nation and he's deciding whether or not he wants to heal the nation, he's not looking at politicians to change. He's not looking at the government to change. Scripture says, and rather God says, he's looking at us. He's looking at his people to change. Now, here's the thing. I've, I've thought about that before, but here's the thing I've never noticed before. As he's looking at a nation, whether or not he's going to intervene and begin to heal them, the thing that hit me is that he's not looking at individuals. He's not looking at individual people at whether or not they're going to turn and begin to seek the face of God. He says, if my people, plural, if my people as a whole, if my people as a generation will together begin to do these things, God says, I will intervene and I will heal their land. He's talking to all of us, okay? Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn to Psalms 24.3. Psalms 24.3. Another famous verse. But again, there's something in it I've never noticed before. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now look at verse five. He says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Okay? So the scripture just told us that if we have clean hands and a pure heart and a soul that's not lifted up to falsehood, listen, if those things are there, then God is willing to intervene again into our chaos and pour out his blessing upon our nation. But there's something that the psalmist says next I've never noticed before, and I think it's key for us to be able to receive the blessing of God in a country that's fallen apart. <clears throat> Look at verse five again. It says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now look at verse six. It says, such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I want you to notice, God says, I will pour out my blessing on you. 
But then he says, such is a generation for those that seek him. And what that verse just said is that what moves the heart of God to intervene in our chaos and to pour out his blessing upon our nation is not when individuals seek the face of God. Says Mark, there's always individuals that seek the face of God. There's always a remnant, amen? There's all, I don't care what culture, what nation, there's always a remnant of people that walk with the Lord. But that's not what the Lord says. He, what moves the heart of God to intervene in our chaos and to heal our land is not when individuals seek the face of God, but what moves the heart of God to pour out his blessing on a nation is when a generation seeks the face of God. That's what that says. So when you look at those two verses together, it's like the Lord gives every generation a choice. He says, your generation can seek money, it can seek power, it can seek fame, fortune, influence, like all the generations before yours, or you can seek me, God says. You can seek me. And God tells us, he says, if your generation will rise up and they will seek my face, I will pour out my blessing upon your nation. I could be wrong about this, but I think that boomers, Gen Xers and all millennials have pretty much made their choice. Now I'm joking about millennials, I love millennials, but I think boomers and Gen Xers and millennials as a generation, I think they've made their choice and I think they've chosen to follow after the world. And because of that, I want you to hear this. Because of that, I believe with all my heart that the greatest hope that we have to see the blessing of the Lord poured out on our country in our lifetime is gonna be found in the generation that's behind us. I really believe with all my heart that boomers and Gen Xers and millennials have made their choice and they're going hard after the world. If God is looking at a generation to seek his face so that he will pour out his blessing, I think the greatest hope we have of that is the younger generation that they just might decide as a generation, we're not gonna do the way of our, go the way of our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers, but we are going to stop, we're gonna turn, we're gonna seek the face of God, and that if they do that, the scripture promises God will pour out his blessing on our land. Read it one more time. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Psalms 24, five, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. That's the word of God. That's the word of God. Scripture's telling us that our greatest hope, our greatest hope to see this country turn from its path of destruction is not found in a political party. Do you believe that? At the core of your being, do you really believe that? Our greatest hope is not found in a political party. Our, our greatest hope is not found in winning back Congress and the Senate, the House and the Senate. That's not where our hope's found. Our greatest hope is not found in a new president. Our greatest hope is not found in winning all the arguments in the public square. But I believe with all my heart, based on what I'm seeing in the scripture about God healing lands, the greatest hope we have to see God intervene in this thing and turn it around is if their generation, the younger generation, will make the decision, we're done with this nonsense and we're gonna seek God. But how's that gonna happen? That's the question. How's that going to happen? How will a generation of young people 
decide that they want to turn and seek the face of the Lord. Well, there's a lot of ways that God can reach generation. But I want to talk for a minute about one of the ways, one of the primary ways that a generation can turn to the Lord. And it's a, it's a way that the scripture speaks to often. Matter of fact, it speaks to it over and over again. Psalms 145, 3, 145, 3. Psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And I love this next part. It says, and his greatness is unsearchable. I love that. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Now look at verse four. It says, and one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And so if you're here today, and you can honestly raise your hand and say, yep, I believe that. Great is the Lord. The Lord's great. I've walked with him for a long time. He's great. He is greatly to be praised. As a matter of fact, he is so great that his greatness is unsearchable. I don't know about you, but I can say that. I've seen it. But if you've gotten to that place, that's awesome. But that knowledge was never meant to stay with you. It was never meant to stay with you. You were never meant to keep that to yourself. But what we're gonna see in the scripture is that it is your God-given calling, it's your God-given responsibility, and it is your God-given command to pass that love and that knowledge of the unsearchable greatness of God to the next generation. It's your calling. And here's another question. Who among us, who among us has been given the primary responsibility of passing down the knowledge of the greatness of God to the next generation? Who's got the primary responsibility? Is it the church? The youth pastors? Um, maybe Christian school teachers? No, the primary responsibility to pass down the knowledge and the love of Almighty God to the next generation lies with parents. It lies with parents. That's who God is looking at first. We see that in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. This was a verse that was a guiding verse for my wife Jennifer and I as we raised our children. God's saying, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine. He's talking about his law. He's talking about his word. Saying you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. So the knowledge of God is not just supposed to be here. God's saying, I need, I need it in your heart. I need it deep down in your soul. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And so as a follower of God, follower of God God's saying, I, I want you to personally, intimately know my ways. But then watch what it says in verse 19. It says, you shall teach them to your children. Talking to them when you're sitting in your house. And so when you're sitting in, in your house, you're not supposed to just be watching Netflix. You're supposed to be talking about God. It says when you're sitting in your house. It says when you're walking by your way. We don't walk anymore. We don't ride donkeys. We're in the car. It means when you're in the car, talking to your children about God, you're asking them questions about their walk with the Lord. It says when you lie down, then when you're putting them at bed at night, you're praying for them. You're talking to them about their walk with Jesus. And it says that when you rise, when you get up in the morning, the name of Jesus ought to be on your lips to your children. So the primary people God is looking to, to pass down the love and the knowledge of the greatness of God to the next generation of parents. That's primary responsibility, but it's not just the parents' responsibility to pass down that to the next generation. Watch this, Deuteronomy 4.7. Deuteronomy 4.7, if you want to turn there. 
God is talking about the greatness of a nation. Going back to this idea of God blessing a nation, this is really interesting. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God, is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous is all this law that I have set before you today? And so God was talking to his people about the greatness of their nation. But in the next verse, I want you to watch what he says ensures the greatness of their nation. Okay, in verse nine, very next verse, he says, only take care and keep your soul diligently. Lest you should forget these things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Look at the next part there. He says, make them known to your children and your children's children. God said, if you wanna ensure the greatness of your nation, you gotta teach your children the ways of God and you gotta teach your children's children the ways of God. Sajma, who's he talking to right there? That's right. You ever thought about that? God wasn't just talking to parents. God's talking to grandparents. How many of y'all are grandparents in here? Raise your hand. How many of y'all are great grandparents? Yeah, that's awesome. I wanna live that long. How many of y'all are great, great grandparents? And that is amazing. That is amazing. That's the picture. That's the plan. For generations to pass down the knowledge and the greatness of God to others. You know, one of the things I hear about grandkids all the time from grandparents are that grandkids are the best. I keep hearing that. And the reason grandparents tell me they're the best is because you love them just as much as you love your own children, but you get to spoil them rotten and send them home right? You ain't got to deal with them, those people, right? And I get it. Look, I get that because I've got one daughter. She's not listening to me right now, so I'm going to talk about her, right? She's in college. And um, I have one daughter. She's a lot of my life. I just adore her. And uh, she's, she's my sweetheart. But she is the strongest-willed human being I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and I have, I have asked God. I have, I'm not joking. I have specifically asked the Lord that he would give her a child that would pay her back. <laughs> I have, for all the misery that she's caused me and my wife. So I want you to know that I get it. You know, let's spoil them rotten and send them home, all right? But at the end of the day, it's kind of unbiblical. It's kind of unbiblical because the Lord is saying, look, you wanna bless your nation? Teach your children's children, the ways of the Lord. And so again, I just, pretty much everybody in the room, I would imagine, if I were to ask the question, is our country on the wrong track? I guarantee you the overwhelming majority of people in this room would raise their hand and say, yes, well, listen, I need you to hear this. The scripture's telling us that the most practical thing you could ever do, the most effective, the most important thing you could ever do to change the direction of this country is not passing around political articles on Facebook. But God himself is saying, hey, you wanna turn the tide of this country? Turn the direction of your children and your grandchildren's heart to almighty God. And so maybe, just maybe, that generation would turn from this world, seek his face, and God says, now I'm ready. I'm gonna heal their land. 
okay? <clears throat> That's the number one reason we're building this building. I'm telling you right now, I've never cared that much about buildings, if I'm just totally honest with you. The biggest campus we had at my former church was a high school, and we're still meeting in it today. So God doesn't need buildings to reach people. So why are we doing it? Because we are called to this generation, and I am convinced that this will be a powerful tool for the church to be able to come alongside parents and to come alongside grandparents and help them fulfill their primary calling and their command to reach the next generation for Jesus. And so here's the deal. For the rest of my sermon today, I want to give you three reasons that I've sort of thought about and come up with why I believe a building focused on junior high, high school, and college students will be an effective tool and helping us reach the next generation for Christ, helping you as parents and grandparents to reach the next generation of Christ. There's three points, and since I grew up Baptist, all three of my points start with B, all right? Are y'all cool with that? Here's number one of why I think this is gonna be a really effective tool to help us fulfill our calling to reach the next generation. Number one, this building will be a bridge of engagement between an unchurched world and the church. This building will be a bridge of engagement between an unchurched world and our church, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, listen, guys, Sagemont, I need you to understand something. The world out there is growing increasingly unchurched. Did you know that? Now, here's what I mean by unchurched. Unchurched are not people that went to church but now no longer go to church, Unchurched people, by definition, are people that have never been to church and have no concept of church. The world is growing increasingly, rapidly unchurched. When I grew up in the, in the 80s and 90s in East Texas, there were two kinds of people. There were people that went to church and there were people that knew they needed to go to church. Overwhelming majority of people that I encountered in East Texas in the 80s and 90s, they either went to church or they at least showed up on Christmas and Easter. And I can never remember in my 18 years there ever meeting a single solitary atheist or at least one that admitted they were. But fast forward 30 or so years, I moved to this city called Austin, Texas. Ooh, yeah, exactly. And I, re I realized pretty quickly when I moved to Austin that there's two kinds of people in Austin. There's people that went to church and then there's people that did not go to church but had never been to church and had absolutely no idea whatsoever of why in the world they would ever wanna to go to one. There's people that went to church and then there's people that church never crossed their mind in their whole lives. Give you an example how big of an issue that was. When I was a youth pastor in the late 90s in the Woodlands, Texas, there were 80,000 people that lived in the woodlands, 80,000 people that lived in the woodlands, and there were seven or eight thriving, growing churches in the woodlands, Texas, out of 80,000 people in the late 90s, okay? But when I moved to Austin in 2002, there was 800,000 people that lived in Austin, that's 10 times the number of people that lived in Austin, and there were seven or eight thriving, growing churches. Why? The city is overwhelmingly 
unchurched. And those hundreds of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that didn't go to church, they'd never been. And again, they had no concept of why they'd wanna go. And I learned this the hard way. I'm a young church planner. So I'm thinking, hey, I'm just gonna invite everybody to, that I see to come to my church. And so I'd be at, I don't know, Denny's or something. Or, you know, something, they didn't, nobody went to Denny's in Austin, some hippie, you know, cafe. I'd be at some hippie cafe, eating breakfast, and, you know, the girl would be serving us, tattoos all over her face and piercings everywhere, and I'd strike up a conversation with her, and I'd be like, hey, I'm starting a church in Austin, Texas. Um, it's called the Austin Stone Community Church. You wanna, you wanna go? Would you, love, would you like to come? And she'd look at me and go, what is that? Is that like a cult or something? Like what? And I'm like, no, it, it, it's a church. It's a, it's a Christian church. We'd love for you to come. And she'd look at me and say something to the effect, and I can't tell you how many times this happened. They'd say, and I don't, I don't know why I'd wanna go to church because I don't even believe in God. It's just a completely different mindset. And guess what, Sagemont? That is where Houston, Texas is moving towards and it's moving there fast. It's moving there fast. In the next three to five years, I just read a study not too long ago that between the, in the next three to five years, Houston, Texas is poised to overtake Chicago as the third largest city in the United States of America. Did you know that? And the overwhelming majority of people that are moving here are not believers. And it's not that they're not just believers, but they're unchurched. They've never been to church. They, they, they have no concept whatsoever or for why they would want to go to church. Now, hear this. Don't miss this. So for you to just walk up to somebody that's completely unchurched, never been, never thought about it in their lives, and say, hey, do you want to come to my church? That would be as a foreign concept to them as somebody walking up to you and inviting you to go to a mosque. They don't even have any concept for why in the world that they would want to do it. But listen, here's the thing. People ask me all the time. They ask me all the time, like, Matt, what is your vision for Sagemont Church? I get asked that probably once, once twice a month. Like, where are we going? What's your vision for Sagemont Church? Y'all ready? I'm about to tell you my vision. Here's my vision in a nutshell. I want to reach the city of Houston, Texas for Jesus Christ. That's my vision. Now, listen, now listen, check this out. Every preacher says that. I believe it can happen. I believe it can happen. You go, Matt, that's a really big vision. And I go, yeah, it's a really big vision. We serve a really big God. And so I believe with all my heart it can happen because God's done it. He's done it in the scripture. Seen a whole city repent, God can do it. But here's a news flash for you. An increasingly unchurched world, in an increasingly unchurched world, especially in the younger generation, they are simply not on their own gonna walk in the doors of a sanctuary and listen to some 48-year-old kind of pudgy guy from East Texas yell at them from a Bible, from a book that was written 2,000 years ago that they think's kind of done. So I'm convinced, here's my point, I'm convinced that we need a bridge, that we need a bridge. Now, that doesn't mean we don't share the gospel. We, we share the gospel with people that we meet. I'm talking about before we invite them to church. We need a bridge. We need a bridge from an unchurched world to the church. And I think that's what this 
one of the things the building helps us do. It, it, it allows, a, it allows a, a, a believing high school student to develop a relationship, a friendship with an unchurched high school student. And instead of, hey, you wanna come to a worship service here at Sagemont Church, maybe they'll go, but they probably won't. It allows them to say, hey, would you like to come to our student building at my church and play sand volleyball with us? They might say yes. They come and they play sand volleyball. They meet Christians, young Christians for the first time in their lives and they realize these people aren't crazy. They're just normal, fun, amazing people. And that way when the believing Christian student does invite that unchurched, non-believing student to come to church, they've been there, they've been exposed to it, they've walked over the bridge, they just might say yes, they just might come into a worship service and hear the gospel and have their lives and eternities radically changed by Jesus Christ. I think it, it means that, that a believing college student here at Sagemont Church can walk up to a, a non-believing college student at the University of Houston who is, that is filled with international students from all over the world and, and they can invite that, that international student to come and, and just come and be a part of something we're doing in that building where that international student can come and meet fun, amazing young people their age, get to know them, develop relationships. And so when that believing college student says, hey, would you like to come to my church? There's a context that they've already experienced that's been amazing. They just might say yes. Come and hear the gospel and have their lives and eternities changed for Jesus Christ. I think one of the most critical things that this building can do is it serves as a bridge. It's a tool. It's a bridge for an unchurched world to be able to encounter our church. Now, here's the second thing it's gonna do. It won't just be a bridge of engagement. But this building will be a border of refuge and protection to help raise our children in the Lord. This building will be a border of protection, refuge and protection to help raise our children in the ways of the Lord. And what I mean by that? Well, the church was never meant to, to hide from the world. It's the opposite of that, actually. The church was never meant to, to retreat from the world and run away from the world, but there's a whole book of the Bible called Nehemiah where God specifically calls his people to build walls of protection around the city of the people of God so that those, the people of God could come and they could retreat inside those walls and worship the Lord and learn the ways of God in, in a place of protection and safety so that then they could go out into the world and proclaim his name. I'm convinced that we need that today, maybe more than any other time in church history. We need a place where our young people can hear the word of God in safety and protection so that they will be equipped to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. I think we need it. I'm gonna show you why. Three years ago, I wrote a book called The Long Walk Home. It's my last book. It's... Uh, it's ultimately about the story of the prodigal son, but the underlying thesis of all of it is about how the younger generation, the youngest generation, young millennials and, and older Gen Z are actually not seeking the face of God, but they're turning from him, specifically kids that are churched, that are growing up in church, they're leaving their home, they're leaving high school, they're going to college, and they're never darkening the doors of a church again. And guys, that's happening in historic numbers right now. It's happening in record numbers. And I came across a study from LifeWay 
research about why that's happening. Why in record numbers are high school students leaving Christian homes and never darkening the doors of a church again? There were four reasons. I'm gonna give you two very quickly. The first one is this. First reason the study cited was the influence on the culture of younger Christians' worldview. It's the influence on the culture of younger believers' worldview. And here's what's going on, what that means, is that our children are being raised in a world where they have access to information like no other time in history. The reality is, is that parents, because of that, because our children have access to more information than any other time in history, parents, your children are not just being discipled by you. They're being discipled by TikTok and by Instagram and by YouTube. And so because of that, they're not just learning their worldview from you as parents and grandparents, but they're learning their worldview from LeBron James and Kim Kardashian and Justin Bieber. And so what's happening, and I'm exaggerating, but that's literally who's speaking into your children's lives on a daily basis. And so when they get out of the safety of their parents' home and they go out into the world and they got a choice to get up on a Sunday morning and go to go to church or to sleep in, they are choosing the worldview of the people that have had such an amazing and powerful influence on their life, and it ain't their parents. It's the world. That's one of the major reasons the study gave as to why kids are leaving the church in droves. Here's the other reason the study gave why young people are leaving the church after high school, and this one was super convicting for me. The kids stated that beside their parents, and I don't want you to miss this, could say that beside their parents, they had no other examples in their lives of committed Christians that showed them a compelling picture of what a follower of Christ should look like. I broke my heart when I heard that. They're saying, look, besides my parents, because kids don't listen to parents anyway. They said they had no other examples in their lives of committed Christians beside their parents that they could look at and go, okay, that's a compelling picture of why I should follow Jesus. And in my opinion, that is the most compelling argument I have ever heard for why this church needs a powerful, thriving student ministry. It's the most compelling reason I've heard. As a matter of fact, guys, I'm convinced that student ministry is more important right now maybe than any other time in history. We have such a small window to see a generation reach for Christ before we send them out into a hostile world. And one of the primary ways that the church can help parents do that is that the church can provide other amazing, godly people that can come around your children and reinforce what you're teaching them at home. And the study showed that that is an absolutely critical part of raising godly kids. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Other people coming around your children that aren't just you that say Jesus is the way. And that matters. It matters significantly. I, uh, I, I, I can attest to the reality of this. I, I have three children. Two are in college. And listen, they're not perfect in any shape, form, or fashion, but here's, here's what I know. Those two kids that are in college that have left our home, they are both actively attending and they're both actively serving in churches in their college towns. Okay, they're not perfect, but both of my college-age students, when they left our home, have made the choice that they're gonna continue to follow Jesus 
and to be a significant part of their church. Now, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? Why did that happen? Why? Well, I can cite a couple of things besides the grace of God. Number one is Jennifer and my influence on their lives as parents. But the other thing, guys, is this, is that those guys grew up um, in, in a church where they were surrounded by young, sharp, fun, committed Christians that poured into their lives and showed them that following Christ is the greatest thing that they could ever do with their lives. And so I'm utterly convinced that a critical, crucial part of raising godly kids, again, is having other godly people that can come around you, come around your children, alongside you as a parent, and disciple them in the ways of the Lord in this building provides a space for that to happen. Last one here. Number one, this building will be a bridge of engagement between the lost world and our church. Two, this building provides a border of protection to raise godly children. And here's the last one. This building provides a base for sending missionaries into the world. I planted, again, the Austin Sun in 2002. And people ask me all the time, Matt, why did a country boy from A&M move to Austin and plant a church? And I tell them, the first reason is because Austin is full of pagans and they needed a church. But the other reason is the University of Texas. University of Texas. Why was that a reason I moved to Austin? Right now, there are 51,000 University of Texas students that go there. It's seventh largest um, college in the nation. And it hit me one day. What an unbelievable missions opportunity that is. Think about it. 51,000 students that are coming from all over the world. And not only, listen, I'm almost done here. Hang with me. Not only did we have this amazing opportunity to try to reach those 51,000 students for Christ, but what hit me one day is those 51,000 students are gonna leave after four years and they're gonna go to Houston and they're gonna go to Dallas and they're gonna go to LA and they're gonna go to DC and they're gonna go to New York and they're gonna go to Barcelona and they're gonna go to London and if we impacted them for Christ then we're sending out missionaries all over the world. And then four years later, we get a brand new crop of them. And we get to do it again. So I started a church. I started with a core team. I don't know if you know this. I started with a core team of 15 college students. Not one of them tied the dime. That's why I was poor. 15 college students. We started a church. We used to meet in an apartment. Core team of 15 college students and us. And the final Sunday that I preached at the Austin Sun of the pan before the pandemic hit, or right as the pandemic hit, we had 8,300 people that were attending. That's not members, that's who, that was attending. 8,300 people attending in five campuses all over the city, Austin, and about 4,000 of them were college students. And it hit me. I started thinking about the impact of that over the course of 18 years. And I did something this week I've never done before. I did the math. I started thinking about how many, over the course of 18 years, how many college students actively attended the Austin Stone and the best estimate that I was able to come up with is the, over the course of those 18 years, we had about 36,000 college students that were actively involved at the Austin Stone. And, and of those 36,000, an untold number of them came to Christ there. An untold number of them began to walk with Jesus there and then left Austin and moved all over the world. Started impacting places for Christ. Listen, over 200 of those college students didn't just go somewhere. 
and impact the world for Christ. They didn't just go to Houston. Over 200 of them became, 200 became full-time vocational missionaries and went not to some normal place. They went to unreached people groups, places you've never heard of in Afghanistan and Libya and Syria in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the, the impact of that is absolutely incalculable. It's incalculable. It all started with 15. Now, why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you that story? Here's why. You know how many college students are sitting within 20 minutes of where you and I are sitting today? How many college students are living, rather, within 20 minutes of where you and I are sitting in a chair today? Between San Jack, San Jacinto College, and the University of Houston alone, there's several other colleges, but we'll just pick two. 80,000 students within 20 minutes of where you and I are sitting right now. Okay, here's the question. Well, let me back up and say this. 80,000 students, 20 minutes of where we're sitting. Best as I can tell, and I've asked a lot of pastors and talked to a lot of you know, missions guys, director of missions for the Union Baptist Association, 80,000 students, I don't think there's a single church in Houston, Texas that's making a significant impact on those 80,000 students. There's a handful that go here and a handful that go there, but there's not a movement where God is raising up a generation of college students. And here's my question for y'all, why not us? Why not us? Can I get an amen? If that doesn't move your heart, you're in the wrong church. We are one of the top five missions giving churches in the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. We have given millions and millions of dollars away to foreign missions and we're gonna always do that. But why not start giving to the unbelievable missions opportunity that is right in front of our face and right out those doors? Why not? If we don't. If we don't, guys, I'm telling you right now, if we don't, we are missing one of the biggest opportunities to reach this world for Christ that we will ever, ever have. And I am convinced with all my heart, that's the reason. It's one of the primary reasons we need to make this happen because it provides a space where we can start doing it, when we can start getting after it. Final reason. Well, actually, that's it. So here's what I want to do before I pray. I got fired up there. Sorry, guys. I want to show you a tangible picture of what we're talking about. I want to show you a tangible, practical, physical illustration of the mission opportunity that's right in front of our face to reach a generation for Christ and maybe see this thing turned around. And so we're going to do our baptisms today right now. And so... Church, this is this is Charlie and Mason Madden. Both of them have made a decision to be baptized today. They're brothers, and so Madden, you stand right there. Catch your brother if he falls, okay? Charlie, have you uh, asked Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior in your life? Yes, yes. Okay. Charlie, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ, risen to walk in the name of the Lord. Mason, have you made a decision 
to ask Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life? Yes. All right. Mason, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ, risen to walk. So this is my daughter, Isabella Kirk, and my son, Derek Kirk. And these are both products of you and what you've done. And so, uh, Isabella, have you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? My daughter, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bear with Christ. Risen to walk in the name of God. We're going to see about this one. This could get hairy. This is Derek. And Derek uh, is my son. And son, have you made the choice to ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life? Yes. My son, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ. Risen to walk in the ministry. I love you. That's our, that's our hope. What if we started seeing those by the thousands? He's big enough to do it. I want to end today by talking a little bit about our past. We spent a lot of time talking about our future. I want to take two minutes and I want to talk about the past. I want to show you a picture real quick. That picture right there is the first day that our old sanctuary, the original sanctuary of Sagemont, was being torn down and that man right there that's watching it is a guy named Pastor John Morgan who was the founding pastor of this church and pastored it faithfully for 53 years. I saw this picture and it took my breath away. I planted a church. I, I know a little bit of what he's feeling right now. I know he's, as he's seeing this building that God moved and God built and 1969, I think it was. I imagine there was a, a mixture of a lot of things. There was probably some sadness. I imagine he's probably thinking about all the memories of the way that God Almighty moved in that building. He's thinking about all the baptisms, all the salvations, all the people that came to Christ, all the thousands and tens of thousands of prayers that went up to the Lord from that place, all the worship all the joy, all the people that stood at the altar and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and his health, to death do his part. And all the times and all the tears that were shed when people were laid in a casket at the front of that thing and people said goodbye. And so I imagine he was feeling some joy and, and some sadness. And I'll tell you another thing. I know John Morgan well enough to know this. I guarantee you he was feeling a great sense of hope and anticipation about what God could do in a building that's gonna take its place. And at the end of the day, and, I mean, and John Morgan will be the first one to say amen to this, but at the end of the day, we are not building this building for John Morgan. We're not even building it for our children. Sage Mott, we're building it for Jesus. We're building it for Jesus. I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that. We build a building that God's not a part of, that's not used to make his name great, I don't wanna have any part of it. We're building it for, for Jesus Christ, end of story. But at the same time, the scripture says, out 
outdo one another in showing honor. And I know me and my heart, we want to glorify Christ. That is first and foremost. But I'd love to honor Brother John. This man pastored this church faithfully 53 years. Pastors that finish well are rare. And I can't think of a better way to honor. Listen. If you're new, this may not mean anything to you, but I want to let you know that I can't think of a better way to honor the legacy of that faithful man of God right there than to replace the building where it all began with a building that will do what he was most passionate about, which is reaching a generation for Jesus Christ. And so for 53 years, 54 years now, God has been faithful to this church and he's changed the world through it. Here's the question. Will he do it again? I think, he, I think he will. He's looking at us. Let's humble ourselves. Let's pray. Let's seek his face. If he's going to do it, he's got to do it through us.